Hi there, this is the Reverend Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. And I do love to tell the story. As I've said before on this podcast, I really do think that a good part of what I do as a pastor, and especially as a preacher, is to be a storyteller, and it's great. I get to tell stories about God, God's love and care throughout history, and about Jesus, God's Son and our Savior, who of course was the very best kind of storyteller. That's not to say, though, that some of Jesus' stories, that is, his parables, were sometimes hard for us to hear or difficult to make sense of. But that's what makes them all the more interesting and, well, that's what makes them true. Such is the case with Jesus' story of the dishonest manager or unjust steward from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. That's the story we're retelling in today's message, which is entitled, Adjusting the Bottom Line. Let's just say this up front. Our text for this morning is by no means easy. In fact, let's just go with what a whole lot of biblical commentators over the centuries have confessed in one way or another, that of all of Jesus' parables, this so-called story that Sarah just shared with us of the dishonest manager is perhaps the most, quote, notoriously difficult, unquote. And you know what? It's easy to see why. I mean, what we've got here in this parable is that it's chock full of immoral, unethical behavior from beginning to end. We've got this property manager who's called out on the carpet by his wealthy boss for squandering his property, presumably cheating said boss out of his money, and who demands an audit of his books before he's fired. So this dishonest manager, realizing that his days are most certainly numbered, immediately goes into crisis mode. After all, he reasons, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. So he decides to go around to at least two of his master's renters, and he tells them to reduce what it is they owe the master. This to ingratiate himself to these people so that perhaps he might just have a place to stay when he's out of work. So basically, when you hear all that, what we've got here is a shady character involved in some very shady dealings. A swindler engaged in the act of swindling his soon-to-be ex-boss, adjusting the bottom line to his own advantage and to save his own skin. Got to say, there is nothing here the least bit inspiring or commendable. This man is a scoundrel in the worst sense of the word. He is most certainly a criminal, someone who, if justice were truly served, would be immediately convicted of fraud, tossed right into jail. And yet, It turns out in this story that not only is the boss impressed with this guy's shrewdness, but worst of all, it seems, so is Jesus. 
Amazing. In fact, says Jesus to his disciples on the heels of the story, the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Ow. And then he adds, you, you make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. So when it's gone, they might welcome you into their eternal homes. Or as it's paraphrased in the message, Jesus says, I want you to be smart in the same way as this unjust, crooked manager. And you and I, together, again, with generations of biblical scholars and faithful disciples, we read all this, we hear this story, and we're left with the same question. What was that all about? What was Jesus even thinking here? I mean, it's bad enough for him to be suggesting that God's people might actually have something to learn from such a criminal. But could Jesus really be suggesting that as his followers, we ought to be engaging in such unethical, not to mention selfish behavior? It's no wonder that there have been such struggles over the year with this passage that some biblical scholars over the centuries, some of them have actually wondered aloud if maybe Jesus might not have actually told that parable. Or if maybe, just maybe Luke got it wrong in the telling. Something is wrong there, in other words. I think, however, not to contradict generations of biblical scholars, but I do think, however, if we just dig a little deeper into this parable and Jesus' assessment of it kind of makes a little sense, a lot of sense, actually. And as so often is the case when we look at Holy Scripture, it comes down to language and context. To it. First of all, we need to understand here that when we're told that charges were brought against this manager, the Greek word there is probably better translated as slandered, which suggests that perhaps this manager wasn't as dishonest as we were led to believe, despite the fact he was being told that. Now, granted, just about every Bible in the world refers to him as the dishonest manager or the unjust steward. But it's worth noting here it's often the case with any accusation that there might have been just maybe a rush to judgment where this guy was concerned. Just saying. And the charge itself, that the manager had been squandering his property, in the Greek language again, had more to do with spreading it around rather than wasting it. Literally, that word, and I don't have the Greek word in front of me, but that word has its roots in, no pun intended, sowing seeds in the soil. To quote one Richard Swanson, it could be that the manager was investing, or he was diversifying, or he was stimulating the local economy, or he was making allies for his master against a time when, when allies just might come in handy. Could be. Or maybe not. But can you see how a particular choice of word 
could serve to make a heretofore thoroughly dishonest manager a shrewd manager. Oh, and, and by the way, the Greek word that's used for shrewd is, and I do have this, phronimos, which also suggests wisdom and prudence. So there's that. And it's also important for us to understand that Jesus tells this story immediately after he's just gotten done telling a trio of other very familiar parables. That of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and of course, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, those three stories were actually told by Jesus in response to scribes and Pharisees grumbling and complaining, as they were wont to do, that Jesus was welcoming tax collectors and sinners and eating with them, no less. So these stories about how God reaches out to those who are lost and draws them back into his loving embrace, about grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, about how even the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low could come to themselves and be welcomed back home by a father who loved and forgave them, all these stories actually flow very nicely into this next story from chapter 16 about how a supposed low-life criminal is commended for his incredible shrewdness. And isn't it also interesting, while we're on the subject, that the next thing Jesus says after he's told this story is a reminder to his disciples and to us that, well, whoever is faithful in a little will be faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. Or to quote the message one more time, if you're not honest in small jobs, who's going to put you in charge of the store? There's a lot there, but it kind of changes our whole reading of what Jesus says in this parable, doesn't it? No. For the record, folks, I don't think that Jesus is actually suggesting we go out into the world and seek to mismanage other people's monies for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not good. Nor is, is it to be inferred here that we should take undue and unfair advantage of a particular situation in which we find ourselves. But it does seem to me that the point that Jesus is making here is that when God calls us to make use of the resources that we've been given, to make an assessment of all that God has provided us in trust so that we might care for it and invest in it, doing uh, the absolute best in whatever way we can with that which we've been given, so that when that final day of accounting comes for us, in the end, we can be commended for our shrewdness, our prudence, and our wisdom. Now, if that all still sounds a little bit suspect, let me put this another way. In a world that ever seems to be shifting beneath our feet from one day to the next, we don't know where we're standing sometimes, it would seem to me that a greater sense of responsibility as regards our faith is paramount in importance. In this seemingly outrageous parable of Jesus, 
We are being admonished that in times of crisis, when all the other securities of this life have either fallen short or are crumbling altogether, our actions as God's people need to be decisive, bold, creative, loving, and above all, faithful. Even if some personal risk is involved, because the future as uncertain as it might seem, is ever and always God's future. And we who would call ourselves believers are stewards of that future. Now, the manager in the parable takes a rather precarious and bleak situation, and he works with it, doesn't he? He wheels and he deals. He does whatever he can, adjusting the bottom line, literally, and in faith. So, and so that somehow, some way, some kind of good may come out of it. Well, likewise, you and I are called to take what we have. This treasure, we are given that is the hope and the love and the peace and the joy of God Almighty. And we are called to work it. To work with it in and through all the joys and challenges of this life that by our efforts... And by God's grace, it'll be transformed into something sacramental and even miraculous. This is what Jesus was getting at in this story. And it's crucial for our understanding of the Christian life. And it's a challenge as well. Now, now maybe it's not tantamount to the shady dealings of a soon-to-be unemployed property manager. but, But the point is, If he was able to do this, why can't you and I, as children of God and as stewards of something infinitely precious, show the same kind of vigor and the same determination in preparing for God's kingdom? Likewise, if you and I who seek to follow Christ cannot use to the best advantage and resources of this life and this world, then how can we ever be expected to be good managers, that is, good stewards of the true riches with which God wants to entrust us. I think that what all this means for us is that in these days of confused and challenging situations, now, perhaps more than ever, where our lives as Christians and as the church is concerned, it can never be business as usual if there was ever such a time, in all honesty. As stewards of all that God has given us in such abundance, we can no longer merely rest on a safe and easy bottom line. We can't just settle for a warm and fuzzy faith, and we can't simply bask in what's comfortable and easy and convenient about our relationship with God, daring not, as we do, to risk ourselves on one one on what one Celtic hymn refers to as the steep and rugged pathway. This way which requires from us courage and some struggle, not to mention wisdom and prudence. Our bottom line needs adjusting, friends. We need to be stirred out of the comfort zone that keeps us from being bold stewards of God's future. And that's true for us individually, but it's also true for us collectively. You have heard me say from this pulpit what I have long believed, that the best thing that the church can do in these times is to actually be the church. 
Well, I'd like to add something to that this morning. If we truly hear God's words in this parable, Jesus' words in this parable, perhaps the best thing we can do right now as the church and each one of us here as part of that sacred body, the best thing we can do is to be the church and be all that we can be as the church and more. Of course, along with being bold and courageous and occasionally outrageous in doing so, we also need to be cautious. Don't forget here that Jesus makes the point also of reminding us that, that no slave can serve two masters because you'll either hate the first and love the second or adore the first and despise the second. All this to say that you can't love God and wealth and expect to do the kingdom's work any more than you can employ the ways and means of this world in your faith without risking becoming sucked into that kind of a life rather than the life that is wholly centered on Christ and his kingdom. So maybe Jesus wasn't advocating the life of a scoundrel after all. And also, by the way, if you read the next verse in Luke after we finished today, you'll discover that the scribes and Pharisees who were lovers of money ridiculed Jesus for what he was saying about all this. And maybe that, certainly, that makes the point. That point is that we need to be bold, yes, but it matters how we're bold. And that's what you and I need to remember as we seek to live out the ways of God's purpose and plan in this life. I remember now how on the days following 9-11, back in 2001, a few of us who were serving as pastors in our community decided that we needed to hold an ecumenical prayer service in the aftermath of that horrible day. Now, as I recall it now, it was all very impromptu. There was little or no time to promote it. The internet really, it was out there, but it wasn't the kind of thing today, so it was hard to get the word out. And really, and to be brutally honest here, none of us were really all, at all sure what we were going to do and say once we got there. We just knew we had to have this service. But you know what? Word got around, and come the evening of the service, that sanctuary, which happened to be at the Catholic Church, which is the biggest sanctuary we had in town, that sanctuary was filled to overflowing. Standing room only, in fact. And just about every congregation in our town was represented. And the congregation included a whole lot of people who rarely, if ever, had darkened the door of a church until that night. It was surprising and humbling, indicative of what was needed at that particular time. But what I'll always remember about that service the most is at the very beginning, our host pastor wonderful priest, colleague, and friend who, whose name was Father Jim Morrison. Used to like to introduce his congregation as the doors, that kind of uh, uh, sense of humor. And he stood up and he stood before literally these hundreds of people who had come out that night and he, he welcomed them and then he said, well, you know what? At least one good thing has come out of this, these terrible events. It got us all together. The thing was, we were together. In some ways, I, I, I've never seen a group more 
together than on that night. We were together in faith, in fellowship, and above all in prayer, and we sang, and we wept, and we embraced one another in that moment as one people of God, relying on the power and grace of God to sustain and lead us. It was a truly holy moment. One that I know with every fiber of my being was good and right and acceptable to God. It's often said that on 9-11, the world changed forever. But you know what the truth is, is that our world is always shifting and changing. And so are we in our lives and living. Each new day, each new event, each new change brings with it a new challenge for you and me as people in faith. But you see, whatever happens, whatever changes come our way, one thing remains the same. God remains the same. God's future is sure. God's kingdom is forever. And because of this, we move into God's future with hope and confidence and strength. And so as we walk out into that future, friends, let us not be afraid to adjust the bottom line of our lives in faith, to proclaim this sure and certain hope boldly, to do it with wisdom and in love and with all shrewdness that we might be entrusted with the true riches. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message we entitled, Adjusting the Bottom Line. It was recorded during our September 22nd service of worship at East Congregational Church. As always, please know that we'd love to welcome you at one of those services, which happens every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road in Concord. Now, if you come, you can be sure that there will be joyous music and singing, some time spent for prayer and reflection, an always interesting and sometimes unpredictable ministry with our children, and always a true spirit of love and fellowship. I'd love to have you be with us. I'd love to have the chance to greet you in person. Well, that's it for another installment of Love to Tell the Story. This is Michael Lowry. I thank you for listening, and I do appreciate your support of this podcast wherever you happen to be listening. Be sure and keep in touch. You can do that by a voice message on the podcast page, on Facebook, or via an email. I'd love to hear from you. So until next time, may God bless you with a great day. Talk to you soon.